Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, in a city that desperately needs housing, is the time we cut back on cumbersome and expensive public hearings. Plus, love it or list it, a Vancouver builder explains the costs in city hall bureaucracy you have to navigate through for a simple bathroom reno. Plus, as many BC cities struggle with public safety, we look at Seattle's response to urban decay. And so many e-scooters, what's the law? We look at the challenges of regulating this new mode of travel on Vancouver streets. That's all next on the Jazz Drew Hall Show podcast. Let's talk housing, but more importantly, contentious public hearings which approve housing or sometimes don't approve housing uh, because things go on for so long that City Hall just walks away from some of these issues uh, and they get kicked down the road and it takes years for uh, some of these projects to be approved. Now, many experts say housing policy has a democracy problem. Uh, now, admit a housing crisis, highly end up unrepresentative public hearings. Uh, many say contribute to decisions that fail to reflect the perspectives and interests of all affected residents. Now, you get a lot of activists at these meetings, whether they support a project, whether they don't support a project. But the average citizen generally doesn't participate in these public processes or certainly doesn't participate as much as they should, after all, because they've got lives, they've got work commitments, they've got children, you got to have dinner dinner ready in the evenings as well. Who can attend a 7 o'clock meeting at City Hall or maybe a 3 o'clock meeting when it comes to some of these issues? Well, there's a growing push because of uh, these uh, public hearings that just get bogged down and nothing ever gets approved. There's a great growing push to get rid of, of a site-by-site public hearings. Now, Vancouver's son, City columnist, uh, Dan Fomano, wrote on this uh, today. Uh, he joins us now. Dan, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Uh, this column that you've written in the uh, Vancouver Sun uh, with cities uh, rethinking the use of public hearings, how widespread is this broad conversation? Well, I think uh, all, across BC for sure, and, and really even beyond, um, a lot of different jurisdictions are looking at public hearings in the way that they work or uh, maybe don't work or could work better uh, because public hearings they kind of vary the way that they unfold in different jurisdictions around North America, but they're pretty widespread in North America um, where there will be some kind of um, public process, including a public meeting um, before a municipal council or a sort of local district government or something makes deci- a lot of the decisions around land use. Not every decision, but it is a big part, a key part of the way that a lot of major housing um, developments have been approved, at least in BC, for a long time now. Um, but a lot of people are kind of saying we need to change the process to improve it. Now, essentially, the system is you have, uh, uh, let's say, a, a hearing regarding a particular property. Usually the city puts a, an ad in the paper uh, for consultation. They'll put it up on in digital media, put it up on the city website, and then you have people coming in and t- uh, talking about their concerns, if there, if there are any. And in many cases, yeah. I don't think there's a lot. But you also, I, yeah. I think you do get activists when there are more higher profile cases, uh, yeah. really used to 
you know, uh, fomenting opposition and expressing their opposition to certain projects. I think the uh, recent development or approval of that building in, in Chinatown would be a classic example of that. Yeah, and I mean, you have the more sort of you cover public hearings or, or, or attend them, you know, whether you're in a municipal staff member or an elected official or, you know, people who work in the real estate development industry often will attend these things over and over. And just from my experience covering them as a journalist, and mostly I've covered the city of Vancouver, but I have watched some public hearings in other municipalities as well. You do tend to notice that there's a, a rel- there's a lot of people who sort of show up in over and over, both people who are coming to sort of support a lot of different housing projects and people who are showing up to oppose them or criticize them. Um, it's kind of a relatively small subset of the overall population who, who tends to get involved in these, um, in these processes, uh, both, both in favor and opposing a lot of, um, a lot of different housing developments. Mm-hmm. But, and as you say, um, some of them go through with uh, very little kind of, fanfare or acrimony. Some of them are, are kind of fly under the radar. Uh, they're approved reasonably quickly. But even in those cases, it's still a fair amount of uh, public and private money that goes into, that, that is required to, to facilitate that process. Uh, if nobody shows up to speak in opposition or in support. It still requires a fair amount of municipal staff time, the politicians' time, uh, the developers' time, which of course, you know, time is money. Um, it, it takes a long time just to go through that public hearing process. So now, increasingly, because of new changes in BC laws, some municipalities are looking at uh, sort of reducing the reliance on you know site by site public hearings, uh, you know, for individual specific properties. Sort of saying for these kinds of projects, if they fit with the overall community plan, we don't need to go through a full public hearing. You know, staff can issue this approval without going through the full public process. And on and on the surface of it, it sounds right. If you go here, look, here's our official community plan. This is how many people we expect to uh, uh, have moving to this community over the next 20 years. We're looking for greater density. In this case, let's say yeah. it's a condo development, a townhouse development in this neighborhood. It's set for zoning. Makes sense. Let's move on. On the surface of it, it sounds great. Do you think we lose something, though, if we walk away from the current proposal of of it's a public hearing let's put the board up uh, at the site let's put some ads in the paper let's put some stuff on facebook and on, on the city hall website invite people to talk about it do you think we lose something there i mean it is a slower more cumbersome process but it is is it an important process that we can't um uh afford to ignore when it comes to a democracy and just letting people air their grievances yeah, and that's definitely an argument you hear some people make. Uh, both members of the public um, and some politicians will say, you know, we shouldn't be taking any op- away any opportunity for these elected officials to hear directly from their constituents. That you know, it's kind of it, it, it's sort of a part of democracy that's at least somewhat unique to local government, right? Because you don't often get to go and talk to your provincial representative face to face, and it's even rarer that you'd be speaking, you know, to to the federal parliament in Ottawa face to face. But it's city halls and municipal halls and town halls and district governments. Everyday members of the community can come and speak directly to the people who are representing them. And it's a, it, you know, it is a feature of local kind of municipal democracy um, and, and government that you don't really have with the more senior levels of government. 
you know, in the same way or the same degree. So there are some people who feel that's very valuable. But of course, it's always kind of a uh, open debate which types of decisions maybe need to go through this full public hearing process. Mm-hmm. When somebody knocks down a single detached house to build another single detached house, they still need to get permits and go through a whole bunch of process. And a lot of people would argue that process is way too Byzantine and difficult and um, expensive and onerous. But that's a, you know to replace a single house with another single house doesn't require a full public hearing up in front of everybody with the city clerks there, security, audiovisual staff, open to the public. It just gets approved through the regular bureaucracy. So, you know, when a, when a single house gets replaced by a duplex, that can also be done sort of through the regular kind of staff approvals process. So, it's, you know, what is the line? What is, is it when a four-story building gets approved or an eight-story building? So I think bigger, more complicated projects, and the example I used in my column was the Jericho land, massive redevelopment that's going through a multi-year public kind of engagement process right now, um, those, you know, presumably big, huge, complicated plans will go through it. But, you know, maybe every four-story or six-story project doesn't need to go through this. It, again, you know, it'll still require permits and a whole pile of paperwork and engineering reports and stuff to be done before anything starts getting built. But, you know, just the question of what needs to trigger that full public hearing requirement. Yeah, no, yeah, I think you made a very good point. I mean, it's also, you know, people need to take time off to, if they are legitimately concerned about some property going up in their neighborhood, take the time off and put put up, uh, you know, a, um, a proposal together and to say, look, I oppose this because of X, Y, Z reasons. I think there's something to be said about let's get on with it, especially in the midst of a, a housing crisis. I would think that's going to push some of this, spur some of this to the point where you're going, you're going let's look, let's look at this. We have an official community plan, and as you said, it's a single-family home, home being torn down to put up another single-family home or a three- or four-story complex that, look, they fit the fit what we want to be doing in the OCP. Let's get on with it. You can't be yeah. uh, asked to stop something uh, every single time or you know, go through the process for the sake of going through a process to seem like you're open and listening and, and all that sort of thing. Are other cities looking at this as well? I'm very curious. Yeah, so basically in 2021, the provincial government of BC changed some of the laws around this. Basically, as I mentioned, enabling municipal councils, if they want to skip the public hearing requirements when it's consistent with an official community plan. So some municipalities have been doing this on kind of like a site-by-site basis. When a project comes forward, um, they'll say, you know what, we're not hearing a bunch of concerns about this or we think this is the kind of thing we really need to speed along so we're going to skip the public here we're going to forego the public hearing requirement for this specific project speed things up a bit uh, the city of north vancouver has done that a couple of times both rental housing and condo housing some mixed use developments um and then some other municipalities like surrey has made sort of a policy change where any a subdivision if you're going to be subdividing a lot to create five or fewer single homes on that property uh, previously, you would have had to go through a public hearing just to go through the subdivision, um, but now you won't if you're subdividing to create five or fewer properties. Um, and so I imagine, you know, it's still relatively new, right? It was the fall of 2021 that the BC government made this change. So over the last kind of year, year and a bit, we're seeing more municipalities are um, pursuing this option. And then there's a whole bunch of other ones that are looking at it. And then you also have some municipal councils are, tr- are sort of using 
this as a way to give a leg up to nonprofit housing. So uh, projects that meet their criteria for social housing, you know, if they're run by a nonprofit and whatever their definition for sort of what constitutes social housing, um, they can sort of say that if you qualify as social housing, you're, you're going to be able to look at skipping the public hearing requirement, shaving lots of time, money, risk off of these projects to try to give a boost up to nonprofit uh, developers who are building, you know, more affordable rental homes. Mm-hmm. So Vancouver is exploring that kind of policy uh, right now, I believe. They're, they're looking at that and staff should report back on what that looks like. And Victoria had done some stuff with that as well to try to boost certain kinds of projects that they deemed um, you know, the more needed kinds of housing. Mm-hmm. Well, at the end of the day, we're in the middle of a housing crisis. Uh, something needs to be done, and uh, we have to move faster on on approvals. That's for sure. And I think most people would be supportive of that. Dan, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Great, thanks, Jeff. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line—it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now I want you to picture something in your mind here. You have a dilapidated bathroom desperately in need of a makeover. Maybe you've been inspired by watching all those home reno shows on television. You finally decide it's time to bite the bullet and make the decision and renovate uh, your bathroom. Now I've been told the true test of any marriage is surviving uh, through a reno. Now, and there's probably a caveat to that on the West Coast here. Perhaps the true test of a marriage is attempting a reno while navigating Vancouver City Hall bureaucracy, fighting for permits, paying exorbitant price while doing all of this with nothing but sheer determination. Well, our next guest knows a few things about development and navigating through City Hall. Uh, Avi Barzilai is a licensed residential builder with Barzilai Building Corporation and a renovator uh, in the city of Vancouver. Avi, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, recently, Avi, uh, you uh, posted uh, something on social media, basically, uh, you know, walking through what it takes in regards to permitting, time, energy, cost of getting a basic home reno approved in the city of Vancouver. So before we get into the specifics, what prompted you to just post all of that on Twitter just recently? It's just sheer frustration, it's sometimes you just get at, at the end of your limit and working with the city of Vancouver, it is so tough to work with them. Eventually you look for an outlet and sometimes that's expressing your frustration on social media or to the media. How long have you been doing renos and building in Vancouver? I've been in business for 11 years. 11 years. Okay. Um, now walk me through. If I'm Joe Homebuilder and I call you up and I say, Hey, Avi, I've heard good things. Help me reno this, uh, this, this bathroom. What's the process? Well, I mean, the one thing I tell everybody, especially when they're working in the city of Vancouver, is just how tough it is to work in the city of Vancouver. And it's not the same as other municipalities or the other municipalities, other municipalities are getting worse. Um, just this year, bureaucracy, even for a small renovation, is so tough. It's a lot of cost. It's not like HGTV. It doesn't happen overnight. And there's a lot of underlying things we have to deal with that just people don't know about. 
So that's one of the reasons why I put out this thread. I really just want people to know and educate people about how the system works. So uh, in your posting, uh, number one, first of all, you have to do a survey, uh, which is $2,000. Now, that's common, I'm going to assume, right? Yeah, it's extremely common. Yeah, $2,000 for that. You then said energy advisor and a report you have to put together. That's $1,500. And then from there, you talked about a hazardous materials report, $750. You have an arborist report, $750. By the way, why do you need an arborist report to to reno your bathroom? Well, the thing is, you don't actually. And that's a policy of the city of Vancouver. It's it's actually written in the bylaw. Mm -hmm. But one of the problems is, City staff don't actually know the bylaw that well. I do. Um, But if you have, let's say, a junior staff member trying to interpret the bylaws and trying to accept an application, well, they tend to want to err on the side of caution and they don't want to make mistakes. So they tend to err on the side of making applicants conduct these consults and paperwork and documentation so that they can sort of protect themselves. But at, at the end of the day, they have to kind of look at the big picture and that's to understand the actual scope of the reno, which mm-hmm. in this case is an interior bathroom. And it's just not necessary. It's not required. Now, I went through one of the numbers, uh, the second uh, uh, figure, which is $1,500 for an energy advisor and report. And in, in, in your tweet, you said that every project that costs more than 20000 requires an energy report and a blower door test. So if, so if I'm doing a bathroom reno, I still have to pay for that uh, energy test of $1,500. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Uh, and then you go through the Arbus report, uh, and then you have to stru- uh, schedule for a structural engineer, another $750. Um, so even if you're not doing any structural work, you still have to uh, have an engineer coming in. Or, well, you know, like theoretically, not necessarily. I mean, you can submit your application and you can say to city staff, hey, look, we're not doing structural work. But at the end of the day, the person looking at the plans, they might might not understand the scope of the project. They might not be standing in your kitchen or bathroom. So they might just say, hey, you know what? We just want an engineer to sign off just so that we can protect ourselves. So it's it's a lot of kind of... Uh, I think staff members being afraid really mm-hmm. to uh, approve these applications because they're afraid of mistakes. But really, when you look at some of the risks, I, I really think some of the risks are pretty low and we need to look at the context of the project and also the fact that we have a housing crisis. We need to get these projects through City Hall. And, you, and then there's another $2,000 here for drawings. Um, now explain this to me. I mean, I kind of understand why you would need drawings, but there, there's also a site plan you need, like for the whole floor? Yeah, so you basically need some details of the specific renovation. Uh, so if it's a kitchen or bathroom, you need uh, uh, some, some drawing work of that. You need a whole plan of the entire floor. And then you also need a site plan of the entire property. Um, I, I do understand there might be some sort of uh, provincial legislation that affects the requirement for a site plan. But at the end of the day, these things are not pertinent to the specific individual renovation. And it makes the process so onerous that what people end up doing is they just kind of throw up their hands. They say, you know what, we're just not gonna get permits and we're just gonna hire someone who's not qualified um, or the city's not gonna get the revenue and they're just not gonna go through the process. And now you you continue, uh, I'm just gonna go through these because I think you do raise some very good <laughs> points here. Electrical plumbing and HVAC permits, about $1,000. Um, and this is more about time for you. You're told basically it's supposed to take five business days. You say generally it takes longer than that? 
Yeah, well, well for, for trade permits, if you're talking about trade permits, yeah. um, historically, pre-COVID, you could get a trade permit same day. So you could walk into a DBL department, um, and if you're an electrician or plumber, you could get your permit the same day. Now, post-COVID, uh, for electrical, I don't know why electrical specifically, but for some reason now it's taking about two weeks to get a permit. There's no change in the information being submitted to City Hall. It's just simply... It's in, so whatever process they have internally, they can't they can't deal with uh, applicants and and what they're submitting to city hall. Um, what would you do that's different here? Because um, you also go on to say there's, there are inspections you have to do, right? A plumbing inspection, electrical inspe- inspection, a framing inspection, potentially an insulation inspection uh, if it's in an exterior wall. Uh, and all of this, at the end of the day, still comes down to a reno for a bathroom. Um, what would you like to see change? Is it a question of just simplifying things? Is it a question of like how would you change it to make it better? I have so many ideas about how to change a system and how to make it better. And I have a lot of specific technical things. But I think fundamentally, uh, the Department of Building and Licensing needs to be receptive to change. We really need a fundamental shift in the culture at City Hall because the way they're conducting business right now is just simply not working. So even things that I've suggested to senior staff members or to council that may seem like simple, reasonable, common sense things that that really, uh, you know, wouldn't hurt anybody or wouldn't cost any money, they don't seem to get implemented. I just I, I think it's really a cultural block right now at at city of vancouver do you have uh, any hope that things would change under this new administration with abc because they've raised these issues they've say they're saying yeah. look you're going to get permits faster this is where we're headed it's going to be more business friendly uh, and, and sort of result oriented as, as mayor ken sim has said uh are you seeing cultural changes are you seeing any sort of change or have you seen any change yeah so um i'm, I'm generally pleased with council and direction of council um, they're very ambitious. They have a lot of drive. And I've spoken to counselors individually, especially AB, ABC counselors, and they have a strong, uh, genuine desire to fix this problem. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, the, the main issue that we're seeing right now is the disconnect between the drive and ambition of council and the existing bureaucracy that's been in place for you know the last decade. It's kind of the same attitudes, the same individuals, the same people. Um, so unless council can impart some of their drive and ambition and and positive energy towards uh, the DBL department and planning department, I really don't see any any major change. Uh, I'm just looking at some of the numbers you've put up here. I think they total up to what eighty four hundred dollars, and that doesn't, of course, include labor and material and anything else. Right. Actually, building this stuff, so eighty four hundred dollars in just permits, roughly, is what you have, right. uh, sort of raise. I mean, some of them may be lower, some of them may be higher, but about eighty four hundred dollars for a simple bathroom reno. Um, if you were to go, let's say, to Surrey, I'm just picking a city out of the year. Maybe you've done some work over there. What is different in Burnaby and Surrey and some of these other municipalities? Is it a time issue for you? Uh, is it a cost issue? Like, what do they do that's different from Vancouver? Yeah, I haven't worked in other municipalities in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that we're actually starting to see these same issues crop up in other municipalities, and it's very concerning. So typically how we see 
development and and all that sort of stuff develop is Vancouver actually leads the way for better or for worse. Sometimes it's for good, positive things. Sometimes it's not for, uh, you know, for negative things. And we're seeing actually uh, speaking to a lot of builders and other municipalities. A lot of these municipalities are going the same way as Vancouver and, and are establishing this entrenched bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Avi, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I know it's not always easy to speak out and, and f- focus on things that need to be fixed, but I appreciate your time today and, and you speaking out. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. With each passing year, there are new modes of transportation available uh, to those of us living uh, in urban centres. Now, following the success of e-bikes, scooters have just received provincial approval uh, for three years as part of a pilot program in which um, six municipalities, which includes Vancouver, will be allowed uh, will allow them on local streets and in protected cycle lanes. Now, when I come into work every morning or when I'm heading home uh, and leave the office here, uh, you see them whizzing by all the time, and they're quite popular, and certainly we even have one or two staffers here at CKNW who... Um, use these e-scooters to to get to and from work. But what are the rules and what are the rules that are actually being enforced? Uh, Joining me now to talk a little bit about e-scooter regulations is Constable Tanya Byzantine. She's a media liaison officer for the Vancouver Police Department. Constable Byzantine, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me. Uh, We see a lot more of these uh, e-scooters out on the roads, uh, especially here in downtown Vancouver, but they're uh, in many of our suburban communities as well. Can you walk through for me some of the uh, issues, if any, that the police department are going through in regards to just, uh, you know, uh, enforcing the laws that are out there? Yeah, so we're definitely seeing more of them out and about. And I mean, they're a great uh, mode of transportation with the nice weather out, um, with high gas prices. It is a a great uh, way to get around town. Um, I think what we are finding here at the VPD especially is just there is a confusion around basically what the rules are. And one easy way for your listeners and those with e-bikes or e-scooters um, should remember is basically it's it's like a bike. So you have to follow all the rules of the road just as you would if you are riding a bicycle. And bicycles uh, follow the rules of the road just like they were going to be driving a car. So, uh, for example... Um, Electronic scooters are, uh, you can ride them in dedicated bike lanes and minor streets only. So you're not allowed to ride them on the sidewalks. Um, You're not allowed to ride them on major uh, roadways. And also you're not allowed to ride them on the seawall, which I think is a big misconception. Mm -hmm. Are you enforcing these rules? Uh, I know you've got many, many challenges before you and, and needs in the city. And one would argue that, uh, you know, uh, enforcement when it comes to e-scooters would be low on the list, but they are prevalent and and the population is growing. Are you enforcing some of these rules? Yes, I mean, um, our officers do have discretion. And if they do come across somebody that's in a violation of one of these rules, then we can um, give them a, a ticket under the Motor Vehicle Act. However, I think right now our main focus is education. Um, we're really trying to get the message out there on what the rules are when it comes to e-scooters. And you will see something from us in the next few weeks uh, on the more educational piece. We're going we're gonna to be putting out more information to really clear the air and really give um, you know, the proper information to the public. Mm-hmm. But I think first and foremost, it's, just, it's best to know that you need to follow the rules just as you were if you were riding a bicycle. Um, is there a speed limit uh, at this point? I, I think these some of these e-scooters are traveling at about 24 kilometers an hour, and sometimes 
even um, as I'm walking to work in the morning or walking out after, uh, occasionally I'll see these Easter just whizzing by. You got to be a little careful because they are uh, so close to people. Um, is there a speed limit at all when it comes to e-scooters? Yes, there is. Uh, they are not able to exceed 24 kilometers per hour, just like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. That still seems pretty fast when you're so close to people. I've seen people whiz by at the art gallery and a few other places. They're whizzing by to the point where, you know, if you had to make a quick change, one could argue that, you know, you wouldn't be able to make, it wouldn't be able to react quickly enough sometimes when it comes to avoiding people. Definitely. And so if you're operating an e-scooter, you, you, again, you have to follow the rules of the road just as a, a vehicle and a bike. Uh, you have to operate this scooter with due care and attention and, and have reasonable consideration for others. So, you know, you're making a right or left turn, you need to, you need to go in those respective lanes and you need to use uh, a signal for that as well with the hand signal. So in all respects, a scooter has the duties and responsibilities just like a vehicle and just like a bike. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think you've been given enough clarity as a police department in regards to rules, in regards to enforcement at this particular point? Or do you think, would you like to, as a law enforcement officer, as a a police organization, greater greater clarity uh, for police departments like yourself and many others around BC in and around e-scooters? So we are working with the city on this. They did uh, create a pilot project, which is what's going on now, and I, I believe that project is on for a few years. Um, so we are working with them, working on getting these, um, you know, the description of, of basically the rules on how to use them under the Motor Vehicle Act, and it's just a constant work that we are having with the city to, to really just iron out the kinks of the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a colleague here at work that uh, owns one of these uh, e-scooters. Uh, in some cases, you can rent or lease them. Is there any difference in regards to uh, rules as opposed to if you own something or are renting or leasing it? Definitely not. Just think of it as if you were to uh, rent a bike from uh, downtown Vancouver. You you rent a bike, you still have to wear your helmet, you still have to obey the rules of the road, stop at stop signs, stop lights, signal. Um, all that still applies with an e-scooter, whether you own it or you rent it. Uh, and you were saying that uh, the department right now is really about ed- the education of the focus around in and around educating uh, users. Will enforcement be coming soon after? Just a bit more aggressively enforcing some of the rules, if, if needed, just because of safety? Yeah, of course. As we do with all of our uh, enforcement um, campaigns or, or things that we do, we, 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 policing is gray. We can use discretion. Um, but if there are situations where somebody uh, seriously hurts somebody or is causing or is driving erratically, just as they would with a vehicle, um, then our officers can uh, issue tickets in that case. But I think first and foremost, we always try to educate, uh, especially when there's something new, just as these e-scooters are. Okay. So just to clarify, I know you went through some of these uh, at the beginning of our conversations. So the electric scooters uh, uh, cannot be ridden on sidewalks, major streets, or the seawall at this point? That's right. They can't ride on sidewalks, major streets, or the seawall. They can stay in dedicated bike lanes and uh, minor streets around the city. And are you enforcing the seawall uh, ban, or, or is, as you, or, as you said, still focusing more on education? Again, it, it is all education, and, and uh, it is circumstantial. So um, that's what we're... we're 
focusing on right now. We want everyone to enjoy the weather, enjoy the summer, uh, and just do so uh, safely and responsibly. So East Goodridge, it also, I guess you're, you're required to stick to minor streets as well. I mean, obviously, you can't be on, on sidewalks and major streets, but so minor streets are, or quieter streets are okay. That's right, yes. Okay. Well, lots to clarify moving forward. That will be up to our elected officials and probably ICBC to a certain degree as well. Uh, Constable Visentine, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. Compared to other Canadian cities on the National Crime Severity Index, Vancouver's violent crime rate has improved over the last few years, but there's little doubt uh, many Vancouverites feel unsafe at times, uh, particularly among high-profile random attacks by strangers that we heard about and reported on prior to the last civic election in 2022. Some have blamed COVID, while others have said what we're seeing on our streets is inevitable because we've never truly addressed the crisis of untreated mental illness, addiction, and homelessness. Well, recently, Monocle magazine from London put out their yearly quality of life uh, issue. In it, they highlight some of the top cities when it comes to livability. Think transportation networks, education, galleries, museums, crime rate, uh, unique policies, or percentage of commuters who cycle to work. There are many, many metrics. The cities on the list were all European and Asian. Think Vienna, Copenhagen, uh, Munich, Singapore, Tokyo. What was missing, of course, or uh, North American cities. Why? Well, crime and public safety loom large. Uh, Gregory Scruggs addressed the lack of North American cities in the latest issue of uh, Monocle. Mr. Scruggs is a Seattle-based contributor for Monocle magazine. He is an award-winning journalist. He's also reported, uh, his reporting has appeared uh, in Bloomberg City Lab, Next City, Thomson Reuters, and the Washington Post. As I said, he lives in Seattle and he reports for Monocle magazine, and he joins us now. Gregory, thank you for speaking to us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Uh, it was an interesting read as I was going through there, you know, and I noticed as well, I said, where are the North American cities? Uh, Vancouver uh, has been in there, I think Toronto as well, and other American cities. And no city is ever perfect. Uh, um, and I wanted to talk with, with you because we're so interconnected uh, in Seattle and Vancouver, we, an area we often refer to as Cascadia. Can you talk a little bit about what your city, Seattle, is going through in the COVID and even post-COVID in time when it comes to public safety? I think the the situation here is similar, uh, if sadly slightly more severe than Vancouver. And and where the, despite our similarities, I think where the the border comes into play is the availability of guns in the United States, uh, quite more readily available than in Canada, and, and certainly our rates of Gun crime uh, have been alarmingly high over the last couple of years, seem to be leveling off, but nevertheless at, at higher rates, I think, than anybody would like, especially after a historic you know, two or so decade run of, of low crime rates uh, throughout the United States. The sudden return to an era approximating the early 90s has been a real shock to the system. Mm-hmm. Now, many have said, uh, whether it's Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver, cities on the West Coast, they're progressive cities, but yet the problems are highlighted here, and it's time to think differently, that uh, perhaps some of the things we as progressive cities have done may be part of the challenge. Uh, you, in your writing, you know, uh, offered some solutions as well, that it isn't just about compassion, but there is a need for some sort of enforcement some sort of um, line uh, driven in the sand that says, look, there are certain things we won't tolerate. Am I describing that uh, uh, rightly? 
Absolutely. And my my point in this essay was was the following, that so much of the political discourse in cities, especially on the West Coast of North America, that are struggling with unsheltered homelessness, with public drug use, they center the 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 person afflicted, the person who's sleeping rough or smoking fentanyl uh, and don't center the as it were, normal citizen. You know, I write in the essay about being a father who is struggling with a decision to take his daughter to a specific preschool because I'll be passing through an area somewhat similar to the downtown east side in Vancouver, but here in Seattle in our little Saigon neighborhood. And I'm just not sure that I want to do that every day on a bike, uh, which, you know, the city invested all this money in bike lanes and sort of good urbanism. And yet this particular corner that I'll be passing by as the most direct route is the epicenter of open air stolen goods, fence goods market, uh, you know, public fentanyl sales. Again, very similar to the Hastings situation in the downtown east side in Vancouver. And I don't necessarily know what the correct way to treat fentanyl addiction is. I mean, there's, there's a lot of chat debates about the harm reduction approach versus mandatory treatment, that sort of thing. And I'm here to say that I want to put those debates aside and just say that if the situation on our streets is making it so that uh, you know, a, a, a family raising, uh, you know, parents raising a family are struggling with whether to, to take our daughter to a particular preschool. Maybe our concerns should be the priority more so than those of the people engaging in these antisocial behaviors in the first place. Do you think, um, you know, progressive voters are increasingly uh, have your perspective in mind here? I mean, they, they're liberals, they, they are compassionate, but there's a line in the sand here that says, look, wait a minute here, let's worry about uh, your daughter and what she sees and you and your safety as you take her to uh, her preschool rather than worrying about or at least saying, uh, let's worry about the folks that are actually have this open air, you know, stolen goods market or using fentanyl, whatever it may be. Yes, those people need treatment. Let's focus on that. But let's make sure we, we, we view it through the lens of you as a dad with your daughter trying to get to preschool. I think the political winds have certainly shifted in North American cities uh, and especially on the West Coast. Elections in the last couple years uh, for Vancouver mayor, for Seattle mayor, uh, soon to be San Francisco mayor, are all trended in that direction. Los Angeles, not so much, but the particular candidate there was, I think, more of an issue than, than broader political trends. I mean, LA's facing these issues mm-hmm. as severe or more so than, than the rest of us. Uh, and I, I anticipate uh, a kind of a two steps forward, one step back. I mean, I, our own mayor, Bruce Harrell, recently in a press conference, although he's waffled on tougher enforcement of public drug use because as a, an African-American, he is very leery of retreading the so-called war on drugs that, uh, you know, and particularly prosecuting things like marijuana back in the day, saw many of his peers growing up uh, in, entangled in the criminal justice system. So he's been publicly conflicted about tougher enforcement in the, you know, today's drug of choice being fentanyl. But in a recent press conference, he specifically said, you know, if there's a, I think he's said mother, but, you know, let's say a parent with a stroller at a bus stop, uncomfortable or unwilling to ride the bus because that shelter, that bus shelter has been essentially commandeered by public drug users. Well, maybe we need to make sure that that parent's, uh, you know, priorities are met first. And, and that was music to my ears. That was just in the last month or so, actually, after I had already written and submitted the uh, essay to the magazine. So I am cautiously hopeful that uh, slowly but surely we will trend in the right direction, although I do think our progressive 
attitudes as an electorate in West Coast cities make us much more cautious uh, about taking assertive action because of these kinds of hangups around the, the history and legacy of police enforcement of drug crimes. Mm-hmm. You raise the issue of harm reduction and decriminalization. We're having the same challenges here where we have decriminalized um, the use of a small amount of hard drugs, up to two and a half grams. But what it's led to uh, in, in many of our cities, never mind just Vancouver here, but our suburbs and in the interior in the north on Vancouver Island, our uh, city councilors saying, wait a minute here, we take our kids to the park and there's open use of drugs now. And then we've legalized that. There's something fundamentally wrong. Uh, so we're going to have to go back to the drawing board. Many of them are bringing in lo- um, uh, local bylaws saying you cannot use drugs uh, in city parks. And I think there's a push to, to, to make that province-wide because it's done by city by city. Are you seeing similar issues here that there still is that broader conversation, treatment versus harm reduction or decriminalization that is ongoing? Yes, you can. You should certainly look to your Cascadian neighbors to the south for an interesting case study. Uh, Oregon voted, uh, I believe this was a state referendum, to, to decriminalize hard drugs and set up a treatment option. Uh, and the data after a year plus of that showed that, so, you know, if you were caught smoking fentanyl in public, let's say, you'd get the equivalent of a traffic ticket with a number that you're supposed to call to, to provide access to some kind of drug treatment. And, you know, you'll have your essentially penalty-free civil infraction dismissed if you do that. And in the first year or so of this program, the, the rate of people who, you know, in the, in the throes of drug addiction chose to call this number and request treatment were, were comically small. I mean, there, it, the amount of money it cost to set up this, you know, 24-hour hotline there were folks basically just sitting in a dispatch waiting for phone calls that never came. Um, so Washington, in con- seeing this, uh, our legislature recently voted to make uh, drug possession. And really, this is more about public drug use more so than, than possession. I mean, if, you're, if you have something in your pocket and you're using it in the privacy of your own home and you can keep your, your act together, as it were, I don't think the police are coming after you. It's the, the public drug use that's creating the situations in parks and public spaces like you described that's the real problem here. Our state legislature decided to make that a gross misdemeanor, um, which would thus empower uh, uh, police officers to to finally kind of address the issue a bit head on and, and hopefully, you know, put folks when someone's arrested or, or, or given a citation or what have you to direct them to treatment in a more carrot and stick type of way than Oregon, which was kind of purely a carrot based approach. However, we saw here in Seattle, our local city council mm-hmm decline to adopt that state, you know, which would be similar to provincial, that state uh, uh, gross misdemeanor at the local level. So now our Seattle Police Department is kind of caught between uh, this this conflicting messages that the state government is saying, yes, public drug use is in fact a crime that that should be treated as such, uh, while our city government is saying, "Mm, not so fast. your essay, uh, I find it very refreshing, first of all, and that's why I wanted to, wanted to chat with you about this today. What what do you think Europe is doing differently than us that perhaps they aren't dealing with some of those issues? Some would argue, look, London has some of these challenges. No city in Europe is ever perfect because there are challenges there as well. Is this uniquely um, a North America-wide issue, do you think, or do you think Europe Europe is either handling this better and some have talked about the portuguese model or do you think it's it's just it's 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 other reasons why and i, I can't point to anything specific but what oh, are they, what's, what's europe doing that we perhaps aren't doing 
Well, I, I would note that London, like Vancouver, did not make Monocle's quality of life ranking this yeah. year. Um, but more so for cost of living reasons in, in London. Um, my uh, limited, you know, read a couple books type knowledge of this is that, I mean, first of all, the stronger social safety net uh, in European countries vis-a-vis the U.S., although, I mean, certainly compared to the U.S., Canada has a much stronger social safety net, mm-hmm. is a factor here uh, that, you know, the, 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 the economic hardships or what have you that might cause somebody to fall into drug addiction or homelessness in the first place or perhaps less common there. Uh, certainly, my, my understanding of the Portuguese model, and I think similar to the Dutch and the Swiss, is, uh, you know, I've used the phrase carrot and stick. It's very much that approach that if you go into treatment and, you know, stay off of, stay sober, stay clean, etc., then there is a kind of reward progression that, that ultimately nets you, say, a subsidized apartment, uh, you know, housing, what have you. Um, whereas I think the, the cart has gone a bit before the horse, at least in, in some of the more progressive North American uh, models where you know, housing first is the mantra that we hear over and over in Seattle uh, with regards to how we, how we can address unsheltered homelessness and, and drug addiction. And the idea that doesn't matter how severe somebody's problems are, could be mental health, drugs, what have you, put them in housing before anything else, and that will kind of everything follows from there if you know, they're also offered with so-called wraparound services. So maybe that's a, you know, a, a mental health treat, a treatment or, or drug addiction treatment in that housing setting. But Europe seems to treat it not, not so fast. You don't, you know, you might get to go to shelter first, but you don't necessarily get a subsidized flat right away uh, that you kind of have to follow a, a ladder of, of uh, steps in the right direction before you're given those rewards. And I, that's from what I understand, um, and I can, I can recommend a particular book to your readers where I, I learn more about this model, um, Michael Schellenberger, uh, the author of San Francisco, How Progressives Ruin Cities. Uh, the title is inflammatory. I, I give you that and was a bit of a turnoff to me. But I found the content, you know, Michael, the author, Schellen, Michael Schellenberger, spent quite a bit of time in Europe reporting on and uh, researching some of these methods uh, and comparing them to how things are done, at least uh, in the U.S., um, that's where I, I picked up, gleaned some knowledge of, of those systems and might suggest that those are, are alternatives that are working a little better than what we've been doing in North America. Gregory, uh, thank you so much for your time. And for our listeners, I highly recommend uh, his essay in, in this um, month's uh, Monocle magazine. It's a good read and a good reality check for all of us here because North American cities did not make that list compared to uh, many in Europe and a few in Asia as well. Mr. Scruggs, thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.